The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Palace of Wayward Dreams, Episode 6. There are three steps, explained Fung. He raised a third needle into Elizabeth's field of vision. She cringed as the needle hovered near her eyes, then veered upward toward her forehead. The first step is acupuncture. Elizabeth felt the prick of the needle as it slid into the skin above her eye. The pain was minuscule, and she dismissed it with a blink. Still, it was strange sensing so many needles jutting out of her face, each weighed down by the yarns that connected her to the electrical box. How do you feel? asked Fung. Like a pincushion, said Elizabeth. Fung smiled at this, then stepped back. His servant appeared, the humorless girl in the geisha's dress. She carried a weathered wood box in both hands, and when Fung took it from her, she bowed and exited the chamber. Fung lifted its lid and took out a long black tube. It took Elizabeth a moment to recognize it as a pipe. The second step, Fung continued, is cannabis sativa. Cannabis, O'Malley bellowed. You can't be serious. Cannabis eases the mind, Fung replied coolly. It will help her enter the dreamscape. You said no opiates, retorted O'Malley. Calm yourself, my friend. You have nothing to fear. Cannabis is not an opiate. She needs only a puff, and her subconscious will do the rest. Fung raised a long-stemmed pipe toward Elizabeth. A match burned in his free hand, its flame dancing brightly. Are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be, said Elizabeth, her voice strained. Just inhale, my dear. You have only to relax. Never in her life had Elizabeth anticipated a moment like this. Perched in a reclining chair, in a secret anteroom, in an opium den, in a small town in England. Elizabeth, of all people, the sullen outcast, the jaded genius in the back of the room, was the last person anyone would have imagined in this situation. What would her schoolmates have thought back in Pittsburgh? Would they ever believe her story about the Chinese druggist who offered her a forbidden pipe? All at once, Elizabeth recalled all the horror stories she had ever heard. Reefer addicts losing their minds in tenement houses, smashing their belongings, beating their neighbors, hurling themselves out of windows. How would she handle the throes of marijuana? Would O'Malley have to restrain her? Once lost, would she ever regain her senses? Would she forever be known as the girl who ruined her mind? A cautionary tale for defiant youths. Ah, the hell with it, she thought. Elizabeth bit down on the pipe's stem. She inhaled, and a deluge of smoke poured into her mouth, down her throat, filling her lungs. Then she exhaled, and she felt the jet of smoke seep out. It felt easy and good. A new sensation flooded her consciousness. Her brain seemed to expand inside her skull, fizzing, lifting, 
defying gravity. She felt airy and light, as if her very soul was steaming through her pores, a mist of being and non-being, gravity and weightlessness, cognizance and oblivion. Her eyes were speckled with color, amorphous shapes, dots and specters. They curved into a tunnel, and she felt herself gliding into it, dimensionless, ethereal, a fractal among fractals. Fung's distant voice spoke. The final step is the zoetrope. His voice echoed through her cerebellum. Zoetrope, 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 zoetrope. Somehow, through the hallucinatory wash, Elizabeth could see the apparatus set down before her. It was a cylinder, perhaps two feet wide and one foot tall, with slits cut into its curved wall. Elizabeth had seen a zoetrope before, years earlier, at the carnival. She remembered the man with the twirled mustache and monocle, his beaming grin and striped shirt. Would you like to see the horsey run? He'd asked. Then he'd spun the zoetrope around. Through the slats, she could see the sequential photographs of a horse. Each picture blended with the others. The horse seemed to run in place, its hooves pounding the soil, picking up speed from a trot to a gallop. She remembered all of this so clearly now. Just look, said Fung. His voice echoed. Just look, just look, just look. Fung spun the zoetrope. There was no horse. Instead, it was a dusty road. People wandered across the dry pavement. Palm trees swayed in a hot breeze. A golden spire rose into the sky. A palace, tiered and sloping rooftops, imperious, exotic, shaped like a tall, what were those structures called? Oh yes, a pagoda. Serpentine dragons wreathed its doorway. She could feel a warm current on her forehead, like the flow of water through her mind. Elizabeth felt herself smile. And then, she was there. Everything moved. Elizabeth heard the squawk of birds, the march of sandaled feet, the roll of ox carts, the bray of a donkey. The sounds were muffled, but unmistakable. She saw passers-by, blurred at first, but easing into focus. Men in conical hats scuttled across the street. They held long poles, pulled wheelbarrows, heaved bags onto their shoulders. Elizabeth moved her feet. One step at a time, she meandered through the crowd. Like a vivid dream, she felt her body. She felt the tropical warmth. It wasn't real, and yet it was. She bumped into the shoulder of a man. The impact was soft, yet she sensed his sweat-drenched sleeve. She smelled their bodies, so authentic, so tactile. She found the steps of the palace. The central pagoda towered above her, 
dark against the red and violet clouds. Elizabeth climbed the steps. She spotted guards, and she paused. The men stood at attention. They were heavily armored and held halberds at their sides. But they didn't move. They said nothing. Elizabeth shimmied between them. They remained stationary. Whatever this palace was, Elizabeth was welcome to enter. All at once, Elizabeth swelled with confidence. This is an illusion, she thought. This is all a dream. She crouched low and touched the stone step. Her fingertips sensed the step, but the feeling was muted. She barely sensed its texture, its hardness, its sun-baked heat. This numbness reassured her. This place posed no danger. Nothing could harm her. She was mistress of this realm, as entitled as any other dreamer. Elizabeth continued her ascent, and she felt something else as well. A magnetic pull, a rush of familiarity. But how could this be? She had never been here. She had spent only a few minutes in this dream. Or was it a few minutes? How much time had actually elapsed? She could barely remember the stairway that had already passed beneath her feet. When she arrived at the tall entryway, the red-painted doors groaned open. But by the time she had resolved to step forward, she had already moved through the door and was standing inside the palace. Here, time and space were different, just as Fung had said. The minutes were drunken approximations. Her movements felt lazy and imprecise, just like a dream. Elizabeth marched down the corridor, drawn by a gravity she didn't understand. Then she remembered. This world was a collaboration. Their minds were tethered together. Her ignorance was melding with the knowledge of the others. She didn't know the geography of the palace so much as sense it. Elizabeth halted. She saw movement down the wide stone hallway. A figure sauntered toward her. The profile was tall, muscled, masculine. She saw the red house robe that billowed around his frame. Yet as the figure approached, Elizabeth doubted her own eyes. His face was large and black. Two lumps appeared on each side, and Elizabeth had to focus hard to recognize them as ears. Soft green eyes smoldered in the shady light, and whiskers sprouted from his leonine nose. The figure had the head of a black panther. The shape of his body was human, but Elizabeth could see his skin was covered in rich black fur. Brawny arms swung at his side, but his hands were feline paws. His legs were clothed in sirwal trousers, but the baggy pants could not hide the long black tail that wagged behind him. His movement was a perfect synthesis of man and animal, and it took all of Elizabeth's courage to hold her ground. The panther drew to a stop. He stood only a few paces in front of Elizabeth. They faced each other silently. Half the panther's face was lit scarlet from the setting sun, the other half lost in shadow. Good evening, my dear, he said. His voice was low and tranquil, 
like the lap of the ocean on a rocky shore. Are you new here? I've come to find Sir Shanley, said Elizabeth. As she spoke, she decided she disliked the sound of her own voice, tinny and distant, as if recorded on a wax cylinder. The panther cocked his head to the side, studying her. His eyes expressed curiosity, nothing more. Is he expecting you? Does it matter? The creature seemed to consider this, then turned around. Elizabeth took his retreat as an invitation to follow. They spent inestimable minutes migrating down the hall. The setting sun blinded Elizabeth, but its warmth and glare did not irk her the way the real sun would. Just when she felt mesmerized by the rhythm of their muted footsteps, a table and chairs came into view. Sir Shanley sat in a wicker chair. He leaned forward, and Elizabeth was startled to behold his healthy figure. Yes, the man was old, but even in his house robe, Sir Shanley looked fleshy, sanguine, fit as a fiddle. His cheeks were plump, and his hair was a sandy gray. Elizabeth assumed that the man had embellished his appearance, removing wrinkles from his face and veins from his hands, but he had still cast himself as an elder man. Seeing Sir Shanley hunched over his marble table and its many board games, Elizabeth could imagine him as a great uncle. He looked up. When he spotted Elizabeth, Sir Shanley smiled simply, then hiked up the sleeves of his robe. He grasped a bottle of champagne, filled a flute, and raised his glass in the air. Well, hello, he said in a husky baritone. Welcome to my palace. O'Malley squeezed a penny in his fist. It was something he always did when he wanted a drink and couldn't have one. He had left his holster in a drawer back in the guest room's bureau, but that hardly cured his temptation. O'Malley assumed that Fung's cabinet was well stocked, and liquor was the last thing he needed, for one tipple always demanded another. Normally, he could subsist on tea, and he could go for days without a craving. Yet on the road, under such duress, O'Malley's thirst for whiskey was relentless. Pressing his fingertips into a copper coin was the only ritual that had ever worked. Sobriety only costs me a penny, he used to joke, but God save me if I ever run out of change. The room was warm and stuffy, and Fung and O'Malley were sweating. Lexi's face was dry, even though she still wore her scarf, and the professor wondered whether she had poor circulation. Behind her, a handsome clock stood on a sideboard. O'Malley had barely noticed it before, but now its face maddened him. The clock's second hand crawled from minute to minute. Time moved so slowly that O'Malley thought the clock might be broken. Entertainment, O'Malley scoffed. Such a tragic way to go. Fung was polishing his ring with a rag, which he also used to dab his forehead. He frowned at O'Malley. I shan't disagree. I myself feel a bit hoodwinked. Hoodwinked? How so? I've known Theodore for some years now, 
said Fung, slipping the ring back onto his finger. Not as long as you, of course. But when my family came to Nesterton, he was kind to my father. His kindness meant the world to us, and we shall never forget his favours. We were exiles, and the English reviled my family. It was a desperate time for us, and only Sir Shanley lent his hand. It was his encouragement and his formal recommendation that paved my way to Cambridge. To put it mildly, I owe the man a great deal. Might I ask what you studied, said O'Malley irritably, that you should open an opium den. Fung absorbed the backhanded insult with a grin. This establishment was my father's. I was raised under this very roof, as shameful as it sounds. I used to watch my father make deposits in the safe. It took me a long time to truly understand what went on here. Fung paused, lost in memory. To answer your question, I studied engineering. I have always loved the mechanics of things. I earned high marks, I'm proud to say. But let me ask you, O'Malley, for you seem an educated man. What English university would welcome you, an Irishman, with open arms? What dean would entrust you with teaching the sons of England? Would they even allow you through the gates, or would they just as soon frisk you for weapons? O'Malley flushed at this. He felt himself look away, toward nothing in particular. The comment had taken him by surprise. Fung smacked his lips. "'We're in the same boat, my friend,' said Fung. "'Years ago, I was foolish enough to believe that a London firm might hire me. I could almost picture it. I'd be out there building bridges beside my English peers. But all they ever saw in me was the yellow peril. They laughed at my name. They threw soiled clothes at me. They spread their eyes and spoke in gibberish.' Their mockery exhausted me. So I came back here. I took over my father's work. Now I give the Lao Wei what he wants. A little wad of dried poppies and a pipe to smoke it from. Fung spread his arms wide, gesturing at the room's compact walls. But the Soma Lodge, he went on, his tone lightening, is something else entirely. I designed it myself. Here, your true self means nothing. You may become whatever you wish. Say what you will, but there is nothing purer than the mind. And to share your mind with others. What could be more beautiful? What gift more intimate? The words rang inside O'Malley's head. And just then, O'Malley did something he had yearned to do for hours. He stole a glance at Lexi. She stood there as before. Her eyes were set on the other figures in the room. But then, to O'Malley's puerile delight, she glanced back. Their eyes met for only a moment, and then they bounced away. Lexi pushed a curl of hair behind her ear. She pulled her knit cap tighter. But O'Malley's pulse throbbed in his temples. He hated to admit it, but everything Fung said made sense. If only circumstances were different, he would give anything to merge his daydreams with hers. To his credit, Fung said quietly, I don't know how Theodore learned of the Soma Lodge. Perhaps a friend told him. At any rate, he came to me, 
I was surprised. I welcomed him, of course, and I honoured his request. To me, that was all it was. I know he has a fondness for curios. He likes... Fung searched the ceiling for the right word. He likes esoteric things. So, I obliged. But he came back. He did, many times. For a few hours at first, then for a full evening. Each time he looked so happy, so alive. I should say he looked younger. But I cautioned him. I advised some respite between each session. I even lied to him sometimes, insisting the room was full, just to defer his visits. I urged moderation. I thought he understood. But then... He stayed. Yes. I should have known better. O'Malley gritted his teeth. He couldn't help himself. He sneered. Yes, perhaps you should have. Suddenly, O'Malley heard a feminine gasp. His head jerked sideways toward the bodies slumped in their chairs. One of the figures sat upright, eyes wide, mouth agape. She sucked in air, and her hands drifted upward toward her forehead. Instinctively, she began to touch the needles protruding from her face. Fung threw himself across the room and touched her shoulders, then guided her wrists back to her lap. Please, Miss Maybell, he said soothingly, allow me. It was the raven-haired woman who now batted her eyes in confusion. She winced as the needles were removed from her skin and collected into a bundle of cords. She then glanced about the room, squinting at O'Malley and Lexi, but said nothing. Then she pressed a hand against her stomach, leaned toward Fung, and whispered something into his ear. Of course, Fung said. The woman stood up, but her legs wobbled beneath her. She stepped awkwardly around the other guests and pushed through the secret doorway into the corridor. Where is she going? asked O'Malley. The water closet, answered Fung. She's been sitting here for quite some time, more than a day, in fact. O'Malley screwed up his face. For all their scientific talk, he hadn't considered a full bladder. This consequence of the Soma Lodge had not occurred to him. Not only had Fung been forced to feed Sir Shanley, but he attended to all of the man's bodily functions. Now the professor felt a pang of sympathy for Fung, who could just as easily have wrested Sir Shanley from his dreams and thrown him into the streets. It took commitment to keep such a comatose man alive. O'Malley regretted his stormy attitude, his accusations. He could never condone the opium, but was the Soma Lodge so vile? Could O'Malley begrudge Sir Shanley, his yearning to escape, to exist in another world, to refashion his existence in a more perfect way? O'Malley drew his pipe and lit it. A few minutes later, the lady re-entered. She still looked shaken. Her eyes darted about the room, and she rubbed her arm nervously. O'Malley felt the urge to calm her. He nodded and said, Good evening, miss. Good evening, the woman replied. Her face was colorless, and her hair was clumped with sweat. Will you be taking my place? Oh, no, O'Malley said. I'm here, that is, we're here to meet with Sir Shanley. Sir Shanley, the lady echoed distantly. 
You mean Theodore? Precisely. Have you seen him? I, I just left him. How is he? O'Malley burst. Is he all right? The lady hesitated a moment before stepping forward toward her empty chair. She removed her fur coat from the chair's back and wriggled into it, then collected her handbag. She studied the room, her eyes drifting to Fung, to the bodies still seated, to the two strange spectators. She was dazed, overwrought. She wavered slightly, her eyelids drooping, and for a moment, O'Malley wondered if she might collapse. This was a wondrous experience, Miss Maybell intoned. There is no other word for it. I feel I've been away for years, a lifetime. I am beholden to you, Mr. Fung, for introducing me to this phenomenon. You are very welcome, Miss Maybell. But I fear I shan't be back, Miss Maybell added quickly. A little perfection is a dangerous thing. Please, implored O'Malley, stepping toward her with open palms. Before you go, tell me, is Teddy all right? Did he say anything? He did, choked Miss Maybell. A gust of emotion blew through her. And believe me, he's never coming back. He'd sooner die. With this, she whirled toward the door and quit the room, leaving a silent void. O'Malley was reluctant to swallow, for fear the sound would resonate in the stagnant air. The words sank in, and he knew the others were thinking the same thing. He'd sooner die. In a flash, O'Malley remembered all those years together, hunkered over books, filing documents, receiving telegrams from all over the world. Sir Shanley's office had been an attic, rented out of a vacant Victorian house. Multiple padlocks had barred the only entrance, and many of the documents were transcribed in code or invisible ink. Together, they had sorted through the jumble of mail, absorbing so much of the world's knowledge. Every envelope contained some astonishing secret, a truth that would shock any man in the street. He would venture home each evening, back to his cramped flat, giddy with the things he had learned. Now, Sir Shanley was allowing himself to die. The pasty carcass in the chair looked nothing like the plucky man he had once known. How had his mentor fallen so far? How could he squander such a full and noble life? How could he entomb himself in this glum chamber and wither to nothing? Lexi harumphed. Well, there's only one thing left to do, she said. What do you mean? said O'Malley. We've got to pull him out, declared Lexi. By force. You've been listening to The Palace of Wayward Dreams, Episode 6, by Robert Eisenberg. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown are produced by Backpack Media, LLC. Original music by Naoya Sakamata and Sixomatic. If you like what you're hearing, you might also enjoy The Mysterious Tongue of Dr. Vermilion and other stories, the first book in the Elizabeth Crown series. For more information about the exciting field of oncology, visit elizabethcrown.net. <laughs>